listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Welcome to By the Well. I'm Sean Winter. And I'm Robin Whitaker. And today we're looking at the readings for Pentecost 7. Uh, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 to 34, We'll then move to Romans, Romans 8, verses 1 to 11, uh, and then we'll turn to Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 to 9, and then the lecturers have also added verse 18 uh, to the end of it to remind us to hear then the parable. <laughs> but let's start with Genesis. Um, Robin, we're still in the patriarchal narratives, but we've uh, pretty much skipped a generation from the previous week. So where, where are we up to in the story of Abraham and his descendants? We have. Abraham has... Um now died and we chapter 25 of Genesis starts with a long list of um, some of the generations and what's been going on and we are now uh, in our passage today uh, it starts with again some lineage Abraham begot Isaac um, and it's the Isaac story of Rebecca we had a little bit of last week we had their meeting sort of arrangement betrothal story and now we we meet another kind of barren woman in this. Which so one we've got several themes here, but one of them is the the cliche of the barren wife, like Sarah. Um, but really, this functions as an introduction to Jacob. Yep. And scholars refer to this as the start of the Jacob cycle. Right. And one of the striking features is there's a very long Abraham cycle, and Isaac is woven into that story. Yeah. Abraham and Isaac going up the mountain, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But pretty much as soon as Isaac meets Rebecca and marries her, yep. we jump to the end and Isaac has children and it's the children that we're yeah, interested it's in. it's all about Jacob. I, right. Isaac, we don't really get any other stories of what Isaac does as an adult. He, That's right. He kind of has disappeared from the tradition, apart from those couple of little ones we know. Whereas the Jacob story is quite extensive and um, and begins in a way that really does frame the kind of narrative that we're going to have about Jacob and the kind of things that Jacob gets up to, yeah. right? So again, like last week, we should remember these are stories that are written down generations later and in many ways this functions at a very simple level as a story of um, Edom and why there's conflict between Israel and and the Edomites who represent Jacob and Esau. So uh, the important thing, while we have this typical motif of, of the barren wife who can't conceive except God intervenes, but then we immediately have a scene of struggle in her womb. Yeah. And this is, of course, symbolic of the struggle that will mark the lives of these twins yeah. for the rest of their lives. The, um, uh, I mean, the story of, of, of two brothers squabbling is a kind of story as old as time itself yeah. and find all sorts of Romulus and Remus and other cultures as yes. well. So it may be that this started off as a story about two brothers, but clearly um, <coughs> by the time it's told here, um, and as the uh, section in verse 30 onwards makes clear, um, what's happening here is that Israelite conflict with and hostility towards um, Edom is kind of read back in so that this is a conflict that goes back as old as yeah. time itself, back into, uh, as you say, Rebecca's womb. Yeah. I mean, it's a great story for preachers to unpack, I think, because there's so much drama and activity and we've got, got, you know, at the level of just family, we've got, you know, each each child seems to have a favourite or each parent seems to have a favourite child, so they're kind of pitted against each other at, yep. at numerous levels. Um but what's good to point out here, Sean, I mean, one of them is the language play, right? So this, this Esau is hairy yep. 
and ruddy might be a good translation. Red. Yeah. So he's going to ask for he's going to sell his birthright for red stew, probably right. red lentils or something. Yep. Um, but there's a play here on the ruddy redness being Adam, Edom. Absolutely. So get. the word Edom means red. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's a word play going on, undoubtedly. Um, there's uh, there's also the sense of um, this. Uh, I think. Uh, uh, ambiguity really about how in this conflict again the thing we talked about about the covenant kind of hangs in the balance until the mm. point when the line of descent is is clearly established and of course contrary to cultural expectations um, it is the younger son who comes out on top of that conflict yeah. so um the the text is keen to make it make it clear that even though they are twins um that uh I, jacob is the younger son so yes. i think the um and later on um you know in romans 9 to 11 paul will make a big thing about this you know that it's it's the covenant promises of god don't play out through the expected processes of yep. inheritance and lineage yep. sometimes those processes are disruptive and that starts right at the beginning yeah. here. so it helps to understand some of the cultural stuff here is that um you know for, for our modern culture we're used to perhaps parents that um break up you know, when they die, the the will splits things between the children. In an ancient culture, it's not unheard of that the eldest son would basically get everything, and would be expected to continue in the whatever the the occupation and the the you know of the of the parents. In a weird way, this has already happened, but less explicitly because Isaac is the younger son of Abraham. That's right. But to Hagar, the slave woman, Absolutely. rather than to Sarah, the yep. the wife. Um, but we've already had a hint of this, and it will, of course, become a motif. So that by the time we get to King David, he is the youngest of the sons and the least expected to be picked, and yet he's God's anointed one. So, you know, this reversal of of the expected inheritor, I think. I think the other thing to say is that we have the initial characterization of Jacob here in mm. this passage, and um, the language again that scholars often use is that Jacob is kind of caricatured very clearly as what we call a trickster. Yes. Um, so he's someone who manipulates and uh, uh, works around challenges and does whatever is necessary in order for the um, you know the birthright to be won or the inheritance to be um, uh, taken up, and uh, that kind of understanding of Jacob, I think is again is really interesting it it gives preachers stuff to work with mm. and also reminds us that these covenant promises that we've been talking about they they don't play out in moral purity or you know clean cut um heroic figures um they play out as right through the hebrew bible they play out through the lives of um troubled and uh, deeply ambiguous uh, figures characters, characters. Yeah. um what they were like in real life we don't know but the yeah. Hebrew Bible writers are not afraid to make um, the kind of key figures in the promises of God, um, those key figures, uh, pretty problematic characters at certain points. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Jacob, of course, the story we probably know even better than this one after this is where he'll he'll put on some fake hair and, and right. trick his ageing um, father into kind of blessing him. But, yeah, even here, I mean, we shouldn't read this too literally. This is, again, hyperbolic dramatic storytelling you know Esau is not actually about to die from starvation he's been out hunting <laughs> he's just um, missed a meal so yeah he he's he's being ridiculous but then Jacob is being ridiculous in a different way by sort of taking advantage and going you know a, a thing of lentil stew for a birthright is not really a fair trade no um but we're supposed to see this with I think a fair degree of drama and skepticism about 
yeah absolutely the, the moral ambiguity of both but it's a lively story and again what it points to is the idea that god's covenant promises are are worked out through the messiness of this mm-hmm. ongoing family history yep well should we turn to romans 8 sean we can yep So last week we talked about that very dense and tricky passage in Romans 7 that sort of leads us towards this. We have skipped a little bit, um, have we? Or no, maybe we haven't. We've Um, skipped, uh, no, we haven't skipped anything. We've gone straight on. We've gone straight on. Um, With this famous line, there is therefore no condemnation. So this is answering the question a couple of verses before, wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? So we talked last week about being as humans located in the situation under the forces of death, um, sorry, the forces of sin yep. that act upon us. Yep. Um, and the question is who will rescue us? And uh, Paul declares God has, there's no condemnation. But we, h- help us unpack this argument, Sean. So um, I, I think uh, uh, the crucial thing to begin with is probably the, the very small phrase that Paul uses in verse 1 and many times in his letters where he just uses this simple phrase, in Christ Jesus. Mm. Um, and behind, within and behind that phrase lies, I think, a whole uh, theological framework, um, which is really, for me, I think, the, the, at the heart of what Paul understands salvation to mean. So because God has raised Jesus from the dead, and because in raising Jesus from the dead, what God has done is inaugurated the new creation. Uh, what that means is that those who come into relationship with Jesus, the relationship can be described as a union or a participation or a sharing or a fellowship. Mm-hmm. Those who come into relationship with Christ Jesus come under a new or come into a new order of power. Yep. They're liberated from the power of sin and death. And they're placed under a new order of power. And that happens in Christ Jesus. So Paul's theology of participation is at work in this phrase and throughout this passage. Mm. What's then crucial about Romans 8 is, is it's the most extensive account of what Paul thinks happens to enable that participation and that union. And what he thinks is key is the spirit. Yep. So verse 2 tells us that the – and it's, it's – uh, um, I mean, terribly kind of phrase-on-phrase bundling up of ideas. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin Sin and death. death. So if there's a a law of sin and death or there's the Jewish law associated with the reign of sin and death, how have you been set free from uh, that? Well, you've been set free by another law, uh, and that's the law of the spirit of life in Christ. Now... Remember I talked about um, abstraction and universalization last week? You did. Uh, this is a really tempting place to say, okay, Paul has forgotten all that Jewish stuff now. He's basically saying there is some abstract universal principle that's the law of the Spirit yeah. that has nothing to do with Torah or the promises to Moses or Abraham or anything else. And I think that's wrong. I think uh, we're still in a Jewish conversation here. We're still doing dealing with Jewish ideas. And so the best way of thinking about it is that Paul as a first century Jew who still believes himself as someone who is bringing these pagans, these non-Jews into Judaism in some way, Paul basically thinks that there are two ways of thinking about the Jewish law. There's a way of thinking about it that connects it to the reign of sin and death and there's a way of thinking about it that connects it to life in the spirit, spirit. in Christ. Yeah. 
So the law is, um, in the phrase of Lou Martin, the law is kind of held in bifocal perspective. You mm, have bifo- nice bi- bifocality view yeah. of, of the Jewish law. So the law can operate in either way depending right. on our perspective Absolutely. and the in Christ Absolutely. is a key part of that. So, yeah. so when you come into Christ, the law doesn't disappear. What the law does is operate under a new regime and a new power. Yep. And that power is the power of the Spirit. Yep. So um, Paul thinks that that's been achieved by uh, what God has done in Christ. Um, and Paul, as he often does here, starts off with the seed of an idea that God has done something and then goes on to kind of expand and unpack what it is that God has done. And that's effectively what we get in verses 3 uh, to 4. God did what the law couldn't do sent his own son in the likeness of flesh to deal with sin, condemn sin in the flesh, and that means that the requirement of the law is fulfilled to the, by those who yeah. are walking according to the Spirit. So there's dualism, there's yes. spirit, law, flesh, death, sin, language piled up, yep. but effectively we're talking about two regimes and two ways of understanding the law depending on which regime it's operating in. I think that's really helpful because it... it, it We've got to remember when we're reading Paul here that he's in an apocalyptic kind of mode, so the dualisms, and it's worth pointing out um, that this language of flesh, sarks, is not body, right? So Paul is using flesh in a quite particular way as a dualism, as the opposite of spirit. That's right. So flesh is the the part that sin gets a hold of. There's a different Greek word, soma, for body. This this is not... um, this is not about our bodies are bad and our bodies lead us in temptation. Absolutely if, not. Um, um, although there have been traditions of Christian interpretation yes. that unfortunately have taken that yeah. kind of body-soul dualism and read it back into yes, these Yes, and I think that's what I want to negate. This is not body-soul. This is spirit-flesh. Absolutely. Although that, I understand that language might seem similar to people, but yeah. I don't think in Paul's world it is. Um, the crucial thing then is the role of the spirit, and yeah. um, I mean there are big debates these days about quite how Paul conceives of how, what he thinks the spirit actually is, and um, we're very okay. used, of course, to thinking of the spirit as something that is spiritual and therefore mm. not not a part of creation or a part of the world or tangible or physical in any, any real sense. Other people are saying actually in the ancient world everyone thought that the spirit was made of stuff <laughs> yeah, and, and, and they quite. thought that what God did was literally put the stuff inside you and yeah. and that new stuff of the spirit made the difference to the way in which everything else kind of operated. So this idea of the material spirit. Um, preachers don't need to solve those kind of scholarly debates but the really concrete thing about the spirit for Paul is that it's a way of Paul talking about the lived experience of salvation. Yeah, That salvation isn't simply something that you think about or believe about intellectually, what salvation is is something that actually makes a difference to every part of um, your lived reality and experience, yeah. um, including, of course, the body. And we see that in those last couple of verses, the 9 to 11, where, you know, um, you know, for Paul, this spirit is something that dwells in you, so we get dwelling language yep. that we might again think of perhaps with John's Gospel. Um but this spirit is the spirit of Christ, yeah. right? So this is very much linked again to what Paul talks about in other places of Christ dwells in me. Absolutely. He describes himself as a vessel in which Christ dwells and everything he does is because Christ is in him. So it is a very um, 
in, which is why I wanted to say before this is not a dualism of spirit and body because this is very much an embodied theology, right? The spirit is in us and enlivens our bodies. And so the language at the end there is of bodies. This enlivens our bodies because the spirit dwells in us and allows us to do things. The, the spirit isn't there simply to kind of get us to that disembodied spiritual states no. beyond death. No. What the spirit does here is enter into, dwell in the human body, um, redeem and restore and uh, transform the body and the flesh um, under the new regime of, yeah. uh, uh, of Christ's resurrection. Um, and as the rest of Romans 8 makes clear, does that in such a way in our lives that it actually points to something that is true about the journey of creation itself. The whole of creation actually is on this journey of transformation um, towards hope. So what spirituality looks like is the exact opposite of dis- <laughs> of disconnection from no, the world from it, or from yeah. the world of creation. It's actually about a form of life that embodies and exemplifies what creation itself is for and is about and how creation operates within God's purposes. Yeah, and I, I mean that is so important for thinking theologically about all sorts of things from climate change to the way we live in our bodies, yep. think about bodies, um, that we don't have some sort of spiritual plan that's somehow carved off. Absolutely. From. So as a preacher, before we move on to the gospel, um, how can we convey this in ways that might be slightly more understandable than dear Paul's words? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I've just had a go, but maybe yeah. I failed. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think you're a bit, a bit too – you spend too much time with Paul. He makes sense to you. Um, I'm just trying to think how we ground this perhaps in – you know, we're in the season of Pentecost where we do talk about the spirit. Hmm. Um I, I find Paul's almost conflation, I know theologically that's not quite right, but um, of spirit and Christ helpful here yep. in that as, as Christians, our experience of Jesus is effectively our experience of the, of the spirit. Of the spirit. Yeah. Um, and, and there isn't an experience of the spirit that is disconnected from the particularity of the Jesus story and of Christ's life, death and yeah, resurrection. That's helpful. So you can't talk about spirituality in a vague general sense. It's something that only makes sense for Paul in the light of what God, what Paul believes God has done in raising Jesus from the dead. Um, the other motif that is struck here, though, that I think is useful is the idea of life. Yes. It's the spirit of, the, of life. Um, and um, in verse 10, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal yeah. bodies. So where, what is life giving? Yeah. Where is life giving? Yes. <laughs> where, where do we see that in our world? What do we do to contribute towards the creation, the nurture, the sustaining of life? Yeah. Um, anything that is life giving on this model potentially is a manifestation of the work of the Spirit. And we are called to um, be those who devote our lived experience and existence um, to that life giving. To the life of others. Absolutely. Perfect. So Matthew 13, 1 to 9, uh, which is the parable of the sower, and then the lectionary gives us 18 to 23, which is the interpretation That's right. in, the, in the mouth of Jesus of the parable of the sower. So Matthew 13, we have a whole stack of, you know, we're, we're well into Jesus just telling parables about the kingdom here. This is what the kingdom of God is like. So Matthew 13 is the, is it the third of the Matthean discourses? I think it is. I think so. And, um, the, uh, and it's all about parables of the kingdom um, yep. from the long this one because it's long plus <laughs> it it's got an interpretation to the to the briefest the parable of the leaven or the mustard seed so um so these are all parables of the kingdom and that very clearly 
tells us something about what Matthew thinks these parables are about. I, I, there, there's a lot of stuff exactly right about how the idea that the metaphorical and um, kind of uh, ambiguous imagery of parables means that these are fundamentally open-ended stories yep. that you can kind of make of them whatever you want. And, of course, the history of interpretation tells us that people have made these parables whatever the hell they want. They have, yep. But for Matthew, the most important thing they do is they point to something that is true about the reign and the rule of God as Jesus proclaimed it. So I think the preacher probably needs to have as a starting point at least to ask the question, what does this parable tell, um, say? And in in the case of the parable of the sower, I mean, what new can we say? But at least there is an interpretation in those latter verses that does actually point exactly to that connection. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, about the word of the kingdom. Yes. And I mean, it's it's worth saying just in our context here, Jesus is, you know, at the start of this chapter, Jesus is, is so surrounded by crowds on the on the lake shore that he gets into a boat, but he, he sits and adopts this position of teacher. So this is one of those Matthean discourses where, you know, Jesus is occupying that teacher Moses kind yep. of um, role. Um, the parable itself, of course, has these four scenarios imagined, mm-hmm. um, you know, seeds on the path, the birds eat. Seeds on the stony ground that um, rise up quickly but don't have deep roots. Uh, so the sun burns them, they die. Uh, seeds among thorns that grow together but the thorns choke them. And then, of course, seeds in good soil. And Matthew has reversed Mark's order here with instead of 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, he starts with the big number. And, so go, this, and goes back down. This yeah. fruitful – I don't know what to read into that. Probably, <laughs> probably nothing, but, you know, fun fact. Um, so – You've talked about the interpretation here, Sean, mm. where J- Jesus then, and again, parables often operate at multiple levels, but here we have quite a straightforward allegorical interpretation. We, we do, and I, but I think the first thing to say is to recognise that, that what the lectionary selectors do is they leave out the material in between yes. the parable and its interpretation. And, I mean, Matthew inherits the connection between um, the parable of the sower and this kind of exposition of a prophecy from Isaiah about people who will listen but not understand um, and are hard of hearing um, and therefore incapable of turning in repentance and being healed. Matthew borrows that from Mark. But the fact that the telling of the parable is followed by passages that say, there will be people who will hear this stuff and will not get it. Yep. Is actually a very legitimate interpretation of the focus of the parable. Yeah. Because of those four scenarios, three of them <laughs> yeah. um, are focused on a negative response. Yep. It goes failure. back again to that stuff about John the Baptist last week. Jesus and John the Baptist come and people don't respond. Yeah. So um so it's to recognise first of all that the the parable itself actually has the focus primarily on the reasons why people don't accept the word of the kingdom. Yeah. And that's to do with, as the explanation makes clear, um, uh, a kind of uh, a fragility of response. So you mm. respond initially, but then that response kind of uh, goes away, or a response that is undone by persecution or adverse circumstances, um, or a response that is uh, lured away by the temptation to kind of pursue other um, other priorities. Mm. And I think it's, um, I mean, all of those uh, make uh, kind of good sense agriculturally on the whole. Yep. They make very good sense in terms of kind of apocalyptic worldview. Yes. The idea that um, 
Are you going to stay faithful to God's promise and to God's word? Well, it's very difficult to do so when persecution comes, or it's very difficult mm. to do so um, when uh, you know a, another imperial structure is offering you another resource or another pathway to power or rich, riches or yep. success. Um, and I think uh, it's important to say that um, this is probably a parable that helps us to diagnose why things go wrong as well as to hold out the hope for the fact that this word can be effective and can take bear yep. fruit and yep. uh, and and re- deliver a harvest. Yeah, and I think if I was preaching here, there, there there is both judgment and comfort in this, right? I mean, the first thing is to say to your people in church who are you know your regulars, you know, you are the people for whom this this word has taken deep roots. You know, that can look a bit different for everybody, but yep. and and with that comes the hope and the promise of fruitfulness That's of right. of you know. Um, that the good soil bears good fruit, and you know, can think of other passages that talk about we'll know them by their fruits or their their work. Um, but and there's also comfort, I think, here for the current church, and possibly reflects the perspective of the early church writing this. Of course, a couple of generations after Jesus actually did or said this, these things, is that they were not universally successful. Absolutely, right? the fact that there's a memory of Jesus telling this parable and a retelling of it. Is a, is a reminder that not everybody will hear and be instantly like, "Oh, yay, good news!" Well, let's, I'll pull, join let's you. pull that back another stage. And neither was Jesus. No. So no. that so so it it begins. I think it does begin in the context of this small, deeply fragile Jesus movement, the call of the disciples, you know, mm. and and the fact that this was incredibly precarious, and Jesus knew it and recognized it, and probably more people laughed at him and told him to get lost or yes. listened for a day and then pushed off or yeah, went back home <laughs> or went back home yeah. or whatever else than that ended up following and, 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 and kind of sticking with it to the point of actually they followed in in that Jesus way in a significant and way. yeah and continued the ministry so there's I feel like there's some ambiguity here about the kingdom it's not your typical like the kingdom is like this and isn't that all wonderful it's the kingdom is there's the apocalyptic judgment here. Yep. The, the kingdom is not for everybody, right? right? Some people will not make it. That's a kind of hard word we've got to grapple with, I think, as preachers. Um, the kingdom is not universally accepted. And yet despite that, there is this promise of kind of this almost takes us back to the Abrahamic stuff we've been journeying with in the lectionary the last few weeks, this promise of, of, of enormous blessing right. and stupidly abundant fruitfulness you know that you're going to have offspring as numerous as the stars kind of stuff so in this sense it stands in this um, continuous tradition of God's promises that go right back to those patriarchal stories in Genesis I think that's right and as we've said it does map on to our own context in in some very obvious ways I think the question then becomes why does Matthew preserve this kind of material in particular I'm really interested in the question of why um, a, a church that where, where kind of apocalyptic intensity had, had lessened, mm. um, which we assume by the second generation or so that you know that people had kind of started to work out that it wasn't going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. Um, why in the Gospels these strongly apocalyptic, dualistic words of judgment, which I think are absolutely integral to the proclamation of Jesus, the historical Jesus, why they were preserved? Mm. And the best answer that I can come up with is that they are, this is imagery, these are stories that demand a decision. That, that they, they place before the audience and the hearer a, a call, an invitation, a demand 
that says there is an alternative here to the one you're currently living and if you get hold if you get it <laughs> mm. then there's something absolutely and fundamentally trans- transformative about it um but because because of the nature of what it is that's being offered you may well not get it yeah and i think that that um rhetorically what that does is it places this sense of a call for decision and you know i i think our primary our preaching from the gospel stories should pretty much always not be about ethics in terms of behavior but ethics as discipleship basically all of these stories are calls to follow in the jesus way and to take the necessary risk to do so yeah, they're invitational. And I mean, and what you've just said, I think it takes us back to that Romans passage too with with part of the promise of that transformation that comes, yep. even though the, the journey of discipleship is not easy and it's not without its struggles, um, is of that life in the spirit and that life that Paul talks about so beautifully. In That's something eight. of the reward, the harvest that yeah. you begin to experience as you step out in faith. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College, and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.